All planning, interviews and recording for this episode have taken place on Nunawal country. This is The Grass Ceiling, a guided tour of sustainability. Sustainability is ever-changing and complex, so join us as we break it down and figure it out. I'm Sumi, one of the hosts. And I'm Nick, one of the other hosts. So we've talked about some philosophy in the episodes before this, and something that came out pretty prominently was the importance of communication. Sustainability is something that's kind of hard to wrap our heads around because of the massive timescales and physical scales on which it operates and exists. So how we talk about it can make all the difference. We had a chat to someone who did her PhD in this very topic. Her name's Elizabeth Bolton. Well, Dr. Liz Bolton, actually. When this interview was conducted, she was still doing it, but she's since submitted her PhD. Congratulations to her. Our conversations touched on some really interesting and important things about neuroscience, psychology, and communication. Check it out. Elizabeth Bolton is a PhD candidate at the Australian National University's Fenner School of Environment and Society. Her work looks at how humans perceive climate change, threat, and hyperthreats, and the need for a change in framing for a more adequate response to this potentially catastrophic phenomenon. She's joining us today via Skype. We've had a couple of technical issues so far, but we've all gotten this running. Hi, Elizabeth. So... If you could just give us the quick backstory to your research, what interested you in this topic? Yeah, I guess from a career-wise, from 1994, I'd been working in the field of emergency logistics. And so it wasn't until 2004 that I I read a book that really alerted me to climate change. I, in particular, one memory really sticks in my head of working in South Sudan among those um, camps with the severely malnourished. And so when I started hearing about the descriptions of some of the impacts of climate change, you know, terms like food security and infrastructure fail and that sort of thing, is that I think I had a very um, visceral response. I thought, oh my gosh, I've seen some of the impacts of what that actually means. But to think of that, the prospect of that happening on a much larger scale, I undoubtedly saw it as a devastating threat in my own mind. So that really led me to this big question of why aren't we responding with something that's going to be that devastating with the same sort of urgency and resourcing that I had seen the security sector use for other sorts of threats. I've seen how we mobilise quickly and you know, we can really turn turn things around very quickly when we think that there is a threat. So I couldn't understand why we didn't have a similar response to climate. Yeah, so that's, I suppose that was the first step. But then once I was obsessed with that question as to well, why aren't we responding to this threat, that threw me into this whole area of neuroscience because as it turned out in the climate space, they'd started to be investigating the same question as to why, why aren't we responding to this. And at this exact time, there had been a, a real advance in neuroscience and we'd really started to discover more about how the brain really makes decisions and the role of the subconscious and so forth. There's about a 10-year body of research in that area that points to the idea that our deep frames, which are these neuron pathways, form a sort of cognitive software in our brain, a sort of a philosophical worldview that influences us really from the subconscious level and it's formed over a lifetime and so on. And so what these scientists had concluded is that we didn't have a software package that allowed us to understand that this was a threat and that this was the main problem. And so then my research focused entirely on 
okay, well, how do we solve this problem that we don't have the right software? So you talk about the idea that we have software and we have neuron pathways and things like that. I don't have a background in neuroscience or anything. Could you just give just a rundown if that's possible of what you mean by software? Yeah, and I should say I've got a literature background as well, so I don't have a science background either. One of the scientists is called David Eagleman, and he investigates human sensory systems like our sight, sound, ears, and so forth. And what he's basically said is that something that's different between the human species and a lot of other species is that as a baby, we're born with what's called a very mushy brain in that we haven't formed our software, which is little neuron pathways that are electrical signals that connect emotions to sight, sound and so forth. So, for example, when a horse is born, within a few minutes it can stand up and walk. Its brain functioning gives it a concept of how to walk, which allows to send electrical signals down to its feet and the hooves and so forth can move. But for a human baby, our neuron pathways, which tell our bodies how to react and think and so forth, um, aren't actually formed. Even, for example, we have to learn how to use our eyes. You know, that's why they have a lot of little things for babies to work out how to have depth perception and so forth. And the reason he said that is, the thing that makes us unique is that our software is designed to be built in response to our environment and to the signals that we get from our environment. And that's why it takes a long time to build. This is our main survival feature. And this is why we can work out to live in an Arctic environment or we can live in a desert environment or whatever. Because we're very, very adaptive. And these neuron pathways, I sort of view them as like fingers. They take a while to grow. I guess the way they grow is the way that we all learn in school. If you think about how you learn to drive a car or you learn the ABC, it's repetition. You learn the ABC through a lot of repetition and hearing and seeing the sounds, practicing them and so on. And gradually, as you learn the ABC, a neuron pathway, like a physical thing, like a finger forms in your brain that helps you to know what the ABC is or how to drive a car, etc. So it takes a long while to, to develop these. And once we once we know them, like we know the ABC, then it goes into our subconscious because it just becomes an automatic thing. We don't have to every day think about what is the ABC. We just naturally know it. That's the idea, is that in the way that we've learnt the ABC, we have learnt a concept of threat and we've learnt a concept of how we live and exist that sits in the same way in our subconscious as a sort of operating system of how we think and perceive the world and perceive threat. So I like to think of them as a whole lot of fingers with electrical signals that tell us how to feel and how to perceive things. Like I'll just give you one example of a very simple neuron pathway. When we watch a movie and we see hero saves victim, feel happy. That's a storyline that we watch again and again and again. The hero saves victim, feel happy. Or it could be um, see fire, feel scared. <laughs> and so, but they become very, very sophisticated and there's millions and millions of them all inter intertwined. And that's our, our worldview. But I think what we used to think is that we just know stuff, but we didn't realize that we actually have to have one of these neuron pathways to be able to know something. Our knowledge that climate could be a threat, we don't actually have a neuron pathway for that. For example, say we see a cyclone that damages a food crop. We don't have any embodied experience to go, that means starvation or anything like that because we just go to the supermarket and buy food. So it doesn't really affect us. So we don't have what's called an embodied sensory understanding of the threat. 
So one of the things worth just quickly unpacking is a word she used, which is uh, subconscious. And she uses it in a way that maybe isn't fully intuitive with how you might think she means. So she talks about this idea that we're very adaptive and that we learn these skills. Uh, She uses a really good example, kind of useful example of learning how to drive a car. It takes a while to develop a skill to learn how to drive a car, but once you know it, then it goes into your subconscious, as she says. Maybe subconscious isn't the right word for that because it's more like it's just it's not conscious. It's subconscious maybe comes with a lot of baggage in psychology. I think it, again, I'm not an expert on this, but I think it's like invented by Carl Jung or popularized by him and is a somewhat contested idea. Regardless of all that, I just think it's worth thinking about it because to go back to the example of driving a car, there exists this thing called highway amnesia, which is where you've been driving from A to B and you have no recollection of doing it. It could have been like a three-hour long car drive and you can't really remember anything of the drive there. Or this can happen while you're walking or it can happen while you're riding a bike and so on. And the point is, as you're walking along, it's become such a learned skill at that point, subconscious as she describes it, that you can do other things while you're walking around. You know, you can think about how you look today or something, something like that. And that's interesting to think about, I think, like how our cognition works and how our cognition hides those basic things from us and how it kind of has to. Otherwise, there would just be so much noise in our everyday life just thinking left foot, right foot, breathe in, breathe out. You know, like <laughs> <laughs> it doesn't work that way. Or it can, but it's not very efficient and so on. A lot of what's become subconscious or invisible to us and to our cognition, which is a big theme in her work, is driven by these ultimately evolutionary processes and our results of us being, at the end of the day, biological beings that were subjected to these evolutionary pressures. The point of all this being that it may not be that optimal to work in that way and to have a cognition that functions in that way. Another thing I just wanted to bring up really quick was an example that she brought up uh, just then was a cyclone damaging a food crop. And because we aren't able to perceive of that damage because we just go to the supermarket and buy our food, therefore we're not, we're not cognitively able to think of what the effects of increasing cyclone activity due to climate change is and, and things like that. But a part of that may not necessarily have to do with the fact that we as humans, our brains can't think about it, but because of the system that we're in, where say you and I, we go to the supermarket to buy our food. But if we're a farmer or if we're someone who grows our own food, then we would have a very different relationship to cyclones. We'd have a very different relationship to food production. So I did just want to bring that up, that it may also be about context and the way our societies function as well as, or if not, instead of cognition. And all of this just stacks up to paint a picture, basically, that human cognition is very limited, not just biologically. There's not just biological constraints, but there's societal constraints, as you're kind of saying. That concept, what you're describing there, that seems to sort of dovetail nicely into um, another concept in your work, which is hyper-objects and hyper-threats. And these are essentially threats that exist on timescales that human cognition isn't evolutionarily adapted to understand very well. Is that a fair summary, you would say? That's a great summary. I guess to explain that, in academic terms, this word object is a bit of a fancy word for thing. (laughs) So hyper object is like a hyper thing. What this philosopher Timothy Morton, with his concept of a hyper object or a hyper thing, he got the idea that we can't really sense this threat or we can't make sense of it. So what he's tried to do to help us get over that hurdle, he's tried to 
materialise climate change and turn it into a physical thing. And he describes it as this massive thing. And he's got a whole book which describes all these different ways that this thing moves and feels and how it operates. Like it's a thing that humans have never seen before. Like we're a kid in school, it takes us quite a bit of time to go through all the facets of this thing and understand how this new thing works. And and if you like, I can describe a couple of those metaphors because I think it helps us to understand sure. what this thing is. Sure, that sounds great. <laughs> yeah. Tell us um, tell us what climate one... change looks like. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, and feels like this thing. Well, one of the things is the metaphor is this um I don't know if you know those Russian dolls. Matryoshka dolls, a, yeah. Yeah, a little doll and another doll and another doll and another doll. And he says that we're like humans are like the littlest doll encased in all these other bigger dolls of this thing. And, you know, one might be a, a water system, one's a planetary cycles, nutrient cycles and so forth. And these are all big planetary cycles and stuff. But because we're just a tiny little human, we are encased in all these big cycles. So what that means is we can't even get out of the problem to be able to see the problem. The Russian doll metaphor is one part of understanding how this thing, our relationship to this thing. So I just have a question about that metaphor, right? So those dolls are you have one tiny doll and then you have a doll that's a bit bigger and another doll that's a bit bigger and I guess one thing that 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 metaphor may not lend itself to is the idea that rather than having a doll within a doll within another doll you might have several dolls that all overlap and that we're within them so for example um you know you might have different ecosystem cycles and processes and everything and they do interact with each other but it's not necessarily a linear or a vertical relationship between those things so are there other metaphors that address that yeah exactly actually that particular dynamic that you were just describing then he calls that phasing the simple way to understand phasing is you know how we see cycle of the moon and as we go through it goes from you know a quarter moon to a full moon and so on depending on what cycle we're in is what phase of it we can see so I think what similar to what you're saying then is he's saying that this thing operates on so many phase cycles like maybe thousands of them that we we never know which phase state we're in or which part of the phase state we're seeing another one I think is quite interesting is this concept on time it operates on a, a system that humans can't understand with time. And he says, you've got to really like think like a planet. The way that a planet would think is, you have to use a lot of metaphors to explain this because the metaphor means that we've already got the cognitive software, but we just apply it to a different thing. That's why metaphors really help. If you can imagine a pile of bananas on your kitchen table, and in our lifetime, we can see if they're left there, how they start going black and they go off. So he would say for a planet, for it to understand how rubies develop from being a rock into a, a ruby stone, that is the same for them as us understanding a banana degrading on the kitchen table. Because climate change um, thinks on planetary timeframes, we can't get our head around how a planet would think. And we have to actually think at a different scale, which is a hyperscale. The catchphrase for that one is to think like a planet. You wrote about... An example of that in your article in the conversation, talking about 60,000 artists, you described a project in which somebody stands still and then they wait for five minutes and then they see how far the earth has rotated and yeah. essentially carry them. Is the point of these projects to kind of build those neuronal pathways so that we can start thinking differently? Is that the idea? Yeah, it's a, 
Yeah, exactly. And, and actually, that man, he's from ANU. He's an emeritus professor at the ANU School of Art, John Reed. And that's exactly what he's trying to do. One of the big criticisms of Morton is that he has all these really dark concepts. You know, he says yeah. it's like being buried alive and it's very pessimistic. But what I, I guess I love about the human spirit, and in fact, it reminded me a bit of you guys doing the technical problem solving that you were doing at the start of this interview. As soon as we know, we say, okay, we are now facing a hyper object, this massive big monster, and it moves like this and it operates like this. Once we get the software in our head and we go, okay, now I understand what we're dealing with. And I think this is what's happened with me and my research is they go, okay, we're not done and dusted yet. Now we know that it operates like a hyper object. We can think at a hyper scale. And this is what a lot of those artists are doing. They're saying, oh, okay, so apparently we can't perceive this thing. So, okay, let's get to work and find some ways to, to start helping us perceive it. I think that's what the real gift of this concept is. It opens up a whole lot of pathways for us to get into problem solving in a different way. The key message from it is that if we continue to think with our old software and keep trying to solve it with our old software, we're never going to solve it. We actually have to build the new software. And once we have got that, I think the potential we can harness is incredible because we have that amazing problem-solving ability. You know, wish you guys just demonstrate that at the start of this project. <laughs> Without <laughs> technical <laughs> issues. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> so I want to talk in a roundabout way, just reinforce kind of what she was talking about so far by talking about video games and art and narratives uh, more generally and the role that they can play in helping build that new software, that kind of new way of thinking. So she talks, for example, about learning to think like a planet. And arguably, there are some video games out there that could help help you achieve that in a way that a book never will, a YouTube video never will, and so on. And that's because, unlike pretty much every other type of narrative medium out there or artistic medium out there, video games allow you to become part of that world and it becomes an interactive two-way process. To an extent, this does exist in other mediums, I'm not saying that, but it's really pronounced, I think, in video games in particular. And through being part of that experience, you can have that visceral reaction to it. To open this whole interview, Elizabeth talked about what sort of got her to understand climate change was experiencing it. You know, she was in South Sudan, she was seeing people who were malnourished and so on. That experience grounded her kind of perception of everything in a way that without that experience, she wouldn't think about it in quite that same way. And video games can deliver those experiences very easily, very quickly, very cheaply compared to, you know, a plane trip to Sudan, you could just buy a game for 50 bucks or five bucks or whatever. Or even having to lose your house to a flood before you recognize how devastating a flood can be. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. As a vehicle for delivering experiences, I think art more generally, to, so I won't just talk about video games, but art more generally as a way to deliver experiences is really important, I think, and can shape our cognition of things. There's probably many good examples throughout history of art creating moral panics and so on. There's that Matt Broderick 1980s film War Games. I don't know if you've ever heard of it. It's so old school now. It's wonderful. It's set in that kind of Cold War atomic age era. And he's like hacking into the United States Defense Department mainframe and la launching all the nukes and stuff. He's just some 14-year-old kid who thinks it's all just a video game. But it's all really happening. And, and after that movie, like everybody started freaking out about hacking into nukes and stuff. Well, there's probably a million and one examples of this. in, But it can capture our imagination, but it can also kind of reframe our perceptions of things, whether they're threats or opportunities or whatever. A lot of what she's saying supports this and pointing to art in particular. Like she literally says... 
It's something that many of these artists are doing. They're saying, oh, we can't perceive this thing, so let's get to work and think of ways that can help us do so. And that's a really confronting and counterintuitive conclusion, I think, to draw, that art has a massive role to play in helping combat climate change. It's just not part of the mainstream discourse when we talk about combating climate change. We talk about recycling and plastic and straws and we don't talk about a deeper philosophical problem about our very old school approach to thinking about this, you know. Um, I mean, I guess art makes us feel things and when right. things touch our emotions, then we're probably more likely to act because mm-hmm. we don't like the way that, say, seeing how many coffee cups we use in a day you know, it makes us feel uncomfortable and so right. we're more inclined to do something about it, whereas maybe seeing a graph and just seeing numbers may not necessarily invoke that same reaction. Yeah, absolutely. One of my favourite speeches of all time, this guy delivered at Boston Conservatory of Music and he was saying to, like, the incoming students who are going to be learning music and doing music for a career, like, I want you to treat this really seriously because just like somebody's going to stroll into an emergency room at three in the morning with an appendix that needs fixing, somebody's going to come to you with a soul that needs fixing or something like that. And he talks about how music can put into feeling and capture something that is invisible and unable to be vocalized in any other way. It's like a way of expressing ourselves that no other medium provides. And that's art and culture and kind of a big part of humans in general, I think. Anyway, it's getting kind of far from what she was saying, but I I guess the core point here is that it's a bit of a problem that art has such a huge role to play and doesn't play it, and there's so many different reasons for that. Looking at this as a STEM problem, not a humanities problem, (laughs) is a a big part of it, I'd say. Yeah, but at the same time, I think about how important climate modelling is in advocacy for urgent policy reforms for addressing the impacts of climate change or preventing it or whatever it is. And one of the most impactful ways of presenting the findings of climate modelling is through art, through imagining what things are going to look like. Maybe it might be a painting or something that really shows this is what your city will look like if we don't address climate change or something like Mm -hmm. that. And also... National Geographic did that. You know, they created this great map of the world. After it's flooded and stuff, so Australia has an inland sea. Yeah, I saw that. You've seen, you know, the one I'm talking yeah. about. So we've both seen it, right? It, it goes far and wide when they do that visually storytelling. And in some ways, climate modelling is kind of like those video games that you were talking about because you create these scenarios, you manipulate a, I guess, a simulated world, mm-hmm. and then you kind of see what happens. And so they they kind of have very similar principles. You kind of have to have both art and science in order to create realistic simulations, whether in video games or in climate modelling. No, that's true. And that's actually a very funny point. They, the industries, economies, the disciplines really do dovetail and dovetail hard is in that simulation, emulation kind of environment. I have a question about what you're saying about we need to build our software so that we can problem solve and think in a way that we haven't before to address this problem that is way bigger than anything that we are capable of dealing with with our current capacities. If it's so big that we're unable to conceive of it, how do we know that the strategies that we have or even the instruments that we have to problem solve are going to be sufficient as well? I think it's actually like a survival drive to get over all those hurdles that you described. But actually, this is how humans have survived all through our history, the reason storytelling becomes out so important is because humans have always faced dangerous, chaotic 
things that we didn't really understand. The reason we stay alive and manage to is because we keep problem solving and debating and thinking and interrogating stuff until we work it out and then we adapt and change. I think we have got the capacity to overcome all those hurdles that you talked about. I just have a practical question on, you know, on this yeah. whole idea. So we have organizations and institutions that may be resistant to to changing policy, you know, so that society can adapt to climate change. And in order for this so-called shift or change or development of new software to actually work, given the existing institutions that are embedded in our society, we're going to need to convince some very powerful people to accept that they're basically going to need to rethink the way that they see the world. How can we see people that are so stubborn to change? How can we see them actually being open to doing this? That was one of the things that the framing research found out was we've been dealing with this thing of communication in a very basic and simple sort of manner. Like, for example, the concept now that you communicate to people via fax is just considered when you understand how the brain formulates and so forth, that there's no way people can understand a fact if they don't have all that software in place. And so you have to address these issues in a very sophisticated, multi-layer way with a discussion about people's philosophy, going into their social identity, their human identity, their understanding of existence, the narrative components to build those storylines. And then there's what's called the effective dimension, which is for people to understand it at emotional and sensory levels as well. And I think that's one of the key things that's come out of neuroscience is that the wrong approach is to go straight for the cognitive side because you actually need the sensors and sensory signals before you can form the cognitory pathways. So again, this is just reinforcing that earlier point, that experience, sensory stimuli is so critical, I think, to formative opinion changing, paradigm shifting, changes in how you view or perceive something. And it has to take place, as she says, at an emotional and sensory level. And your average infographic or news article or you know, dare I say it, podcast probably isn't going to fully achieve that. And she says, we've been dealing with communication in a very basic and simple manner. It's not an approach that is well adapted to how the brain actually works. And then also, I think she kind of reinforces your point earlier that you make about how context is so important and how it's not just the biological constraints on cognition, but also the societal ones as well. God, it's going to be so complex just trying to communicate sustainability with all that different things in mind. <sighs> Basically, I would say that question you had then is we have to approach this in a far more sophisticated way and we have to harness the very best of our communicative skills in our society, which is our best filmmakers, you know, our best orators, using metaphors and so forth to have quite a comprehensive communication strategy. It can't just be like a report with a couple of facts. And the reason some facts work with some people is because they might already have a framework. They might have come from a family or a community which already values environment and things like that. So they've grown up with that. But for someone else who comes from a different framework where perhaps economic survival is more important at that particular time and so forth, it's going to be more difficult. But one of the solutions I come up with is that we actually need to have a hyper-conversation and it's so multi-layered, this thing of making this threat tangible and real 
well, one of the things, for example, is we have all these intelligence agencies. Is to use our uh, intelligence agencies to help us make sense of this problem and make it more mainstream. The importance of this sort of claiming the narrative, I, I guess something that's really come out recently is that we see these reports from the, I think it's called a new influence organisation. Since the Paris Agreement, the fossil fuel sector has spent over a billion dollars in narrative strategies to persuade the population that it's not really that urgent and they're doing their best they can to transition to renewables, which in fact they're not because it's only 3% of their budget. So they've invested $1 billion in trying to shape how people perceive this problem. But if we look at the climate sector, have we invested that sort of level of effort to help people perceive and understand? What I guess I'm trying to point to is how big the task is. It's got to be bigger than just a few dot points on a brief. On that, because I think that ties nicely into that conversation article again that you'd written, you sort of lamented the fact that we were assembling these huge teams of you know 60,000 scientists to look at the physical dimensions of the problem when those are already pretty well-explored depths and avenues and so on, whereas we need 60,000 artists and poets and philosophers to come together and start communicating that in an effective way that people can understand. You know, I read that, and, and I guess I wanted to ask you the question, is it also maybe possible that we should be bringing scientists into that? It's not just that the artists are missing from the equation, but that also the way we're using scientists and people more broadly in that STEM field we're not using the scientists as the communicators or we're not encouraging them to think beyond measuring and modelling and instead to look at you know, commu uh, community, psychology, communication and so on. I think undoubtedly it has to be um, an interdisciplinary, multidisciplinary thing. One mistake I'd say is that leave the whole communication burden on the scientists entirely is not the smartest thing because... The art of telling a story, an effective story, requires a lot of skill and particular talent. I don't know if you've ever seen some of the statistics, for example, of how many people write novels a year and how many get rejected. Like it's millions of books people write and think they've got a great story to tell. And I think only like 0.02% of books get published. And of those that get published, 10% of them go on to sell over 5,000 copies or something like that. Right. Um, so um, what that tells us is that there's only some people have the ability to be a Tolstoy or a um, to write the what was those great um, Harry Potter books. Yeah, J.K. Um, Rowling. Or, yeah, yeah. yeah, J.K. Rowling. Not everybody is a J.K. Rowling, right? There's some people who've got real talent and expertise at communicating things and, and they don't necessarily have to be of an artist with a paintbrush um, it could be just someone who's like a, I mean for example Waleed Ali or some of these yep. media um, commentators who can distill stuff into ways that resonate with people they're very sophisticated communication skills or writing skills or imaginative skills you know not everybody's a Steven Spielberg for example not everyone can make a blockbuster film yes of course we can bring scientists in and try to teach someone who's grown up all their life being a great scientist to suddenly have an idea about creative communication. And you'll get some people who are great scientists and great communicators, but a lot of them won't be, and they just simply won't have that skill. And it's about actually using the talents that we've got across our whole spectrum of our society. Yeah, I think it's a really good point she's making there that we all have different skill sets and not everybody's going to be a J.K. Rowling or something like that. But it's also worth, I think, pointing out that in the context of what we're talking about, which is combating and reversing climate change and rising to the challenges and opportunities of other sustainability issues, 
not everybody needs to be a JK Rowling. Like success here is defined a bit differently than we'd probably define artistic success in other contexts. So a win here is not necessarily fame or recognition, but understanding and changed attitudes or beliefs or behaviors even. And that's worth pointing out. Like that's kind of not the usual approach or the usual context you'd see in narrative or entertainment or anything in this kind of field. Usually the goal is financial and artistic success rather than societal improvement and and deeper understanding. It's funny because when you see games or media or movies that try to have that deeper moral thing, they're usually insufferable. Like they hit you in the face with a sledgehammer with it, with their moralizing or whatever. Or it's like the movie that tries to be educational or whatever. And it's just like, it's just kind of lame and boring. And I didn't come here to see a documentary. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I'm still just kind of thinking about different ways to communicate stuff. And it's just interesting what she's talking about. And also makes me think of another thing. There's this science fiction writer who used to be a scientist in a past life. And he brought all that experience and knowledge from his science background. And with considerable natural talents for creative writing, created a really beloved cult classic science fiction book that is shedding new light on cognition and consciousness, neurophysiology and stuff. This is Peter Watts, who I think we've talked about before, Mm -hmm. Um, a guy who asked the question, you know, what is consciousness, not what is consciousness, but what is consciousness good for? And then by trying to answer that question, took us down to completely new paths and he did that whole thing in a weird hybrid mix of science and science fiction, STEM and humanities, if you want to think about it in those ways, in that dichotomy. And not everybody has that skill, I guess. I just wanted to reinforce what she's saying. Like, it's mind-blowing reading that book. And then it comes with, a, like, it's almost as long as the book, like an addendum at the end with links to scientific papers explaining this, that, and the other thing and how he thought, you know, should they work this way or that way and his thought process in designing these things. And, oh, my God, it's just mind-blowing. The world building, it's like J.R.R. Tolkien building um, Lord of the Rings level of, you know, detail. Not everybody can do that. But the people who can and who have that specific skill, she describes Waleed Ali's ability to kind of explain really difficult concepts. Peter Watts explained consciousness in a way that was so simple to understand and just terrifyingly scary concept. The way he delivered it was beautiful and perfect and that's something that scientists can't do. It's something that we need artists to do. And I know I'm just kind of repeating myself again and again with the theme of this episode, but it just seems to be like such a huge overlooked part of the whole sustainability formula. Just like not all of us can be awesome communicators like Wally Dully or Peter Watts or J.K. Rowling or Steven Spielberg, mm. at the same time, not all of us want to be communicated to in the same way. So it's also rather than thinking we should put all of our resources into getting these people who have obvious success and an obvious talent, also kind of thinking about different ways to approach communication, noting that maybe some people like reading, whereas other people like watching movies and other people like video games. Mm -hmm. And so kind of having a multi multi-pronged approach to it. She says, it's God, it's so multi-layered or something like that. Absolutely. Let's get J.K. Rowling. Let's get out the very, very best. We've got the best people doing science, so let's get the best people on this communication problem because it's a phenomenally difficult problem. It's not just something anyone can just turn their hand to. Mm. Uh, We've been struggling this for 20 years. I think we have to have some respect for how difficult the issue is, (laughs) and and that means mobilising the very best people. Uh 
started going. <laughs> it's interesting you say that. It kind of reminds me of the documentary series Years of Living Dangerously, mm. where they're trying to communicate various environmental or sustainability issues, and the people they're bringing onto the show are storytellers, you know, famous actors, comedians, and so on. Not so much the environmental scientists who might get a five-minute showing in the show, but do you think that that sort of thing is indicative of the kind of direction you think we should be going? Yeah, definitely. And I mean, I think possibly the person who had the biggest breakthrough in, in global communication of climate change was Al Gore. And because he is a masterful communicator and he, you know, I don't know if you remember that film and his presentations where he, he actually walked, yeah, he walked up that stepladder to show the graph um, and he, he used story himself about growing up, I think, on a tobacco farm from memory. And he used a lot of those good communicative skills because he's a politician and he's got that sort of skill. And he was able to have the breakthrough. He's an example of someone like that. But I think the, the other thing that this is quite a basic thing, it goes back to how we learn our ABC, is the repetition thing. So if it's just one really good film, once people go back and they're swamped with a whole lot of other material for the you know 99% of the time... No matter how good it is, if it's not, if the messages aren't being reinforced regularly, they're not going to have as much salience. So that comes down to that sort of volume thing. Something that kind of just came to me is that there is an opportunity here for religion. We talk about sustainability as something that has to do with science that is supposedly undisputed, you know, like 97% of climate scientists believe that climate change is real and I don't know, is it at 100% yet? Whatever. Anyway. I hate that stuff. (laughs) (laughs) This can be your major world religions or it can be the spiritual belief systems of indigenous peoples. Uh, Like whatever it is, religion and spirituality is something that is very closely tied to the decisions that people make, those who believe in them. So, for example, if your religion believes that you shouldn't eat animals, then people won't eat animals. And in a similar way, if religion and religious leaders were able to get in on this idea and this movement of sustainability to basically say that, you know, there there is a thing and maybe they talk about how God relates to sustainability, possibly there is a sphere of influence that scientists may not be able to access at this current point because sometimes science and religion seem to be opposed to one another. Um, but I mean, what about like Indigenous Australians and their spiritualism tied to country? Exactly. No, that's what I mean. What sorts of platforms and resourcing do you think is needed to make this sort of creative presentation of these urgent issues? What do you think it's going to take? Do we need more grants? Do you think it's a much bigger thing than that? Global collaboration? It's it's really multi-pronged, and I'm not just saying this because I think so, but the people have actually studied how do we grow these neuron pathways, and what they understand is there's a whole stack of things that contribute. It's not really just one thing. One thing is social identity. Humans have this thing where they really like to think the same as their social group, and there's actually a whole lot of subconscious feelings about safety around this because if you think differently from your tribe there's this sort of idea that you can be ostracized or that you can you lose job opportunities and you lose connection with family and friends. There's a lot of very significant risks of thinking differently from your tribe, whatever your tribe is. If we understand that people are very scared to go out on their own from their social group and the way that tribes as a group all change their thinking is that they all have to move together. And so from that, there's a lot of thing about it has to be group discussions and the whole group has to go together. 
and that the role of leaders in that community have a very key role. Part of that is rather than just having experts talk at people, you work with groups and groups have sessions where they're able to discuss it and the opportunities for people to come together in groups and be presented the problem and discuss it in groups with their community. So that, that's just one part of the prong. And another part of the prong is dealing with some of those emotions like fear and threat. Initially, for example, there was a big thing about don't use a fear narrative because you'll be accused of being alarmist and people get put off by fear narratives. We now have a much more sophisticated understanding of the role of fear. And again, this comes from evolutionary um, psychology. Is Fear is actually a helpful thing because it triggers a whole lot of things in us which helps us escape danger and go into active problem solving. And if we don't get a fear sense, it doesn't precipitate those reactions. It's like flight or flight response and those kinds of things. Yeah, but it's not necessarily always a bad thing. Sometimes it just is actually a thing that allows us to really focus and get into a really serious problem-solving mode. One of the things I was coming to is it has to be a hyper-conversation, but those community conversations need to be facilitated by sort of really clear graphics of, of how we're tracking. And so we don't infantilize people with the problem by not telling them how bad it is. We have very, very clear graphics showing that, for example, by 2020, this is what the IPCC is saying, we have to have a very dramatic, steep reduction in greenhouse gases from 2020. If we give that problem to everybody and say, okay, for your this city of Melbourne or this region, how can we achieve such a steep trajectory? And we had a whole lot of problem-solving forums. And we just kept it really simple around, let's not overcomplicate it with 3,000 facts on soil salinity and you know millions of disparate little facts that confuse and overwhelm people. Yeah, If we had very simple metrics that for every community and city were able to quickly look at and see where their town's tracking in terms of that deceleration, they could almost get competitive and excited about it. We can bring in all those people like sports psychologists who know how do we motivate people to stay, to persist on a really difficult goal. So this is our goal to keep these emissions down like that. So how do we keep that goal in mind and motivate people to keep persisting with a difficult goal? We know that people like to track a goal and see how they're performing. So some sort of metrics that help us understand how we're progressing, honestly, I think would help a lot. So again, harping on these same points, but it's just interesting how they're kind of central and recurring throughout the whole interview. So this idea of having metrics that track your sustainability score and you becoming competitive with that, with maybe a neighboring town or your friend or scale it up or down how you like. That's something called gamification. And it really works to change social behavior we're discovering. And it's just goddamn addictive. It taps into some really like lizard brain level cognition stuff, stuff that's just really basic human nature, so to speak. We like to compete. We like to compete not just with other people, but with ourselves. And compete not also just in a zero-sum kind of thing where it's you win, I lose, but also we both win, but we both push each other kind of thing. I'm really interested in this idea of gamification for sustainability. There was an example, I think it was in like Sweden or something, where they turned good, safe driving into a game that was tracked via an app or something. It like halved the speeding fines in like the month after it was reduced. Everyone was getting on it and being like, it's kind of like your passenger rating in Uber or your Amazon seller rating. It's just these kinds of little competitive status-y, prestige-y things. Like Duolingo, the language learning app? Yeah, that's gamified learning personified. Really excellent example of it. Really famous example of gamification. I love it. It's a fun little app.
Another question for you is when you look at and talk about threats, is it climate change that you're focused on exclusively or are you also looking at others? I guess part of the reason I ask is because in my own studies on sustainability, every now and then I come across an academic or someone else who's saying, you know, climate change isn't the real threat. And then just pick your pick your poison there about, you know, what pet issue they're worried water. about. You know, it could be water, it could be biotechnology, it could be artificial intelligence, it could be runaway technological progress in some other area. Like y- you spend a lot of time looking at threats and fears around threats. How do you think it's helpful to think about the range of threats? Yeah, you're right. There's a trillion approaches you could take. I guess the approach that I have taken is I think the climate and environment things are all intricately interconnected. And so I've just put climate and environment or change together as one threat and acknowledging that they interweave in so many different ways. Yeah, that's probably just the short answer. I guess because I'm thinking about this idea of the hyper-object and climate change as an example of that because it extends on these vast timescales that we're not really used to thinking about. And then... um, Conversely, we have threats that are almost exponentially fast. Like if you look at how quickly um, some technological progress can just sweep across. Interrupt myself. Um, I mean, you. <laughs> so, another point here. You're um, just interrupting yourself. Yeah, interrupting myself. Um, so we talked about the limits of cognition in terms of perceptions of time. You got to think like a planet if you want to think on geological timescales and understand weather change patterns and climate change. You got to think like a planet. But that's how you deal with, say, climate change. But if you're dealing with some other existential threat, potential existential threat, we'll say, like uh, artificial intelligence or anything like that, it's not a planet you've got to think about. You've got to think like, a, you know, self-teaching, rapidly accelerating artificial intelligence. You've got to think in a completely different paradigm. You've got to think in terms of exponential change, where on a day-to-day basis, there's not really much of a change. It's only in the 11th minute at the 59th second and 59th minute, 59th second, that everything suddenly doubles and that doubling of things leads to a graph where change is really imperceptible for the huge majority of the time and then suddenly it's, oh, crap, things are changing rapidly and profoundly and potentially irreversibly. So I guess it kind of means that we've got to train ourselves to think at a variety of different scales and in a variety of different ways. And that presents a really big a challenge for communication. Yeah. Wow. And this is a part of the reason why I think we focus so much on climate change. Because we're just like, okay, well, look. Just picked it. <laughs> this is a really obviously big deal. We need to deal with it. There might be some other really big stuff, but we're pretty one thing at a time kind of species, it feels like. And that may be our reason for our downfall. It might be, but who knows. <laughs> May not be. I guess because I'm thinking about this idea of the hyper object and climate change as uh, an example of that because it extends on these vast timescales that we're not really used to thinking about. And then conversely, we have threats that are almost exponentially fast. If you look at how quickly um, some technological progress can just sweep across you have a past in the military, so you've probably seen military applications of this. Say the proliferation of landmines or something like that, for example. We have there a really negative outcome driven by technology where the threat has kind of come in on very human timescales but is still significant, I guess. This sort of gets into the later part of my research where I do apply some of those military methods for analysing threat. So step one is defining this climate and environmental threat which is multifaceted, but putting it all as one thing. Step two is to consider that threat in the context of other threats mm. and how that they, they interact with each other. 
a couple of things that come out of that. One is the narrative that goes out to the community as a, as a collective for us to evaluate ourselves, what is the greatest threat? And again, this is something humans have done since the dawn of time. And part of whether we survive is our ability to correctly interpret the range of threats that we face and choose our response to all those ranges of threats. So then you have to consider things like, okay, let's compare a cyber threat to the threat of climate change and its different dimensions, because this decision about how we're going to compare these different threats has implications for us in terms of um, resourcing and prioritisation. My assessment is if you line up climate and environmental change against a whole lot of other sorts of threats, it is far more destructive than all these other sort of things have the potential to. And, and even for something like cyber warfare or even, dare I say it, one of the worst ones, nuclear warfare, even with nuclear, there is some possibility of remediation, although it's very messy and yuck and could take a long time. But for dangerous climate change, there really isn't any remediation possibility. So just to be clear there, you're yeah. saying it's the difference between looking at suboptimal future and one in which we're annihilated entirely. Yeah. So what I'm teasing out there is that Bostrom's framework, essentially, his definition of existential risk, which went one of two ways. You've got annihilation where you just splat, boom, bug on a windshield, and then the other one, which is a drastic curtailing of our potential. So rather than everyone dying, it's like, oh, we had nuclear war and now we live in nuclear sludge. We're still here and we endured it, but we're never going to fully recover from that. I think it's the time for us as a community to look at these ranges of threats and say, well, which is the biggest and which is the most important? And we have to prioritise. When you look at all of them together, there is actually, this is what I'm discovering, is that there's some ways that through us addressing the climate and environmental change one, that we ameliorate some of the other threats. For example, some of those other threats that you're describing, say, for example, we start getting a real scarcity of resources and so forth, and people then want to go to traditional warfare. The reason they're going to traditional warfare is to get these resources. So if in the first place we make sure that the resources are secure, and I hate to talk about the environment in that way because that embodies a whole mentality of you only look at the environment, so it's just a resource for humans to use, which I don't like. But just for the purpose of this argument, let's have a look, for example, at Lake Chad in Africa. It's an enormous lake that used to provide a livelihood for 81 million people. It's shrunk dramatically over the years through not just climate change, but poor environmental management, unrestrained irrigation, and et cetera, et cetera. No surprise, we now have Boko Haram and a massive human security problem in that area because the environmental has fed into that scarcity, which has then exasperated other security problems. When we think of the climate threat and addressing that versus other threats, we have to actually understand if we don't address the climate threat, that's going to exasperate That's a great point. Yep. Yeah. Sounds like you're doing yeah. some fascinating research, truly. You touched <laughs> on about six different topics that we were going to cover ourselves. So. Yeah, this kind of reminds me of the example that you gave of The Handmaid's Tale mm. in a previous episode where you were talking about how everybody was trying to save the planet or do something good mm -hmm. but then that you know had this really dystopic outcome right it's this i don't know if i'm being really obvious here in saying this or if i'm like tapping onto something that a lot of people don't realize about the show i really have no idea but when i watched the handmaid's tale and you know i'd read reviews about it and they all talked about it from the, through the lens of gender and like dystopian literature and stuff and it's like this horribly violently misogynistic world and I saw all that in that show and that narrative. That is what really like messed with me and like baked my noodle, it kept me up at night. It was the little snippets of the world 
beyond the walls of this hive of misogyny. It was it was this idea of a dying world out there and this horrible world that they'd built was a response to an even more dire threat. And so it was in some ways justifiable and desirable than the alternative, which is what the other countries were doing, which was dying. Um, so I guess the lesser of two evils. The lesser of two evils, but man, some serious evils. <laughs> I guess what I'm saying, like, I'm not sure if this is a really obvious point to be making or it is kind of subtle, but to me it seems like Atwood is telling this beautifully subtle, gut-wrenching, visceral story about climate change or sustainability more broadly and how we respond to it and allowing us to see how we could mess that all up, create a really bad system, and that could be even worse than just everybody just starving to death. That sounds like so obvious and weird to say, but the environmental problems we're going to see aren't just going to pose environmental problems or be felt the impacts of them aren't going to be felt in just environmental ways. Sounds so obvious to say it, I know, but it's another thing to say it. It's another thing to like watch it as the show unfolds or read it as the, going through the book, I think. And that, again, returning to that same point of art's ability to kind of capture the imagination and allow you to change your perception of something. Think like a dying planet. <laughs> I was just talking to a friend yesterday about how there are actual bunkers being sold for millions of dollars oh, yeah. for basically people who are trying to save themselves from climate change. Mm -hmm. And, you know, there's these underground bunkers fully stocked with like, I don't know, 20 years worth of food and mm -hmm. things like that. And the fact that the only people who can afford them were the people who can fork out millions of dollars. Right. But on top of that, within those bunkers, they've only stocked up like 20 years of food. <laughs> what happens is you come to the tail end of those stores. And the one thing that I thought about was just maybe, yeah, the people who couldn't afford the bunkers would be fighting for our lives and struggling way before any of these people who were in the bunkers had to, but it's going to come to that point anyway, because you're still going to have those same issues of scarcity. Mm -hmm. So it's like, it's kind of like a stopgap measure. Absolutely. And so for them, they were just prolonging the inevitable. There's a fantastic article about all of this and it makes a couple of really cool points. The first is you look at the zombie movies and that's us. In, in the yeah. kind of climate apocalypse yeah. where the faceless, nameless, seen on screen for two seconds thing that gets made down by the person riding past on their motorcycle and the person on the motorcycle is the rich person, you know, or in the helipad or a helicopter or whatever, flying above it all to their little bunker. The second thing that's interesting is this whole siege mentality. You're exactly right. It's a stopgap measure. And maybe there isn't anything that won't be. But typically it's like, yeah, here's a bunker for me and my family. And then you read in this article, for example, about the more elaborate plans and they start to build a community instead. It's a doctor and a security team and a school and, you know, medicals and police. And, well, you're just building a whole society now. <laughs> you know, this is Noah's Ark type stuff for the rich. And it's just, hmm, yeah. I mean, if you know anything about genetics and population bottlenecks, like minimum viable populations to, you know, maintain genetic diversity and stuff, it's just like... This is not a good approach to resilience <laughs> yeah. whatsoever. I mean, this is the kind of scenario in the world that's presented in another Margaret Atwood book, Oryx and Craig, mm. which I strongly recommend. It's a really good book. And basically they had these massive communities, but within those communities that were gated complexes and people lived in their own safe bubbles and they had these tube trains that would go from one rich community to another rich community. But between then there was just the world out there, which was a world of conflict. Mm -hmm. 
and you had these two worlds sort of coexisting, which in in some ways we can say that it already does in the world that we're in, but it was sure. just very pronounced. No child from the rich world would be allowed into the the other world or anything like that. She's very good, I think, at capturing class-based and just identities, societal class-based commentary, I guess, wrapped up in that whole environmental dystopian literature. Not everyone can be a Margaret Atwood, sadly. But she has that role to play, right? And I think it's a really important role. Underrated role. Soup's underrated. <laughs> All the topics that your research focuses on seems pretty meta, you know, pretty large scale. And like you said, the whole point of it is that it's so big that it's hard for us to conceptualize. How do you navigate that yourself in terms of your everyday life? And I guess my question is, does it mess with you in any way? And how do you how do you deal with that? Yeah, I'd have to say, I would say that I'm in a state of excitement at the moment. Because I, I think I've got through that phase of coming to terms with the fact that we've got um, a hyper for it. Because I've been immersed in it for so long, I think I've built some of that software package. I feel immense hope because it's like as soon as I've got this new software package or as soon as I put these new glasses on that can see, I suddenly see a whole stack of amazing opportunities and solutions and pathways out of this problem. I'm now thinking at a hyper level and all, all I feel is a sense of urgency of getting, I, I think it opens up a whole lot of ideas we haven't even touched the surface of. There is vast potential. Occasionally when you know, I feel overwhelmed or exhausted, I, I'd have to say the school kids striking has filled me with a lot of inspiration. My memory of that woman that I met in South Sudan who was severely malnourished and I saw her, she was essentially... Um, to describe it, so I'm just trying to pass on the visceral understanding of what starvation and food security is. It's, it's like a skeleton, but the skin's like cellophane, but the eyes are moving and you just honestly can't believe you're talking to a human being that's alive because everything you understand of what a human being looks like is not there. I remember having a conversation through an interpreter with this woman who was very close to dying of starvation. I've been really haunted by that conversation and that woman ever since. And so I think... Often I think of my nephews and nieces and I think of that woman or that image of the savagery of starvation and it gives me quite a lot of um, drive. Even at the worst point, I would think if you frame it as a threat that we're up against, there is sort of that sense of human fighting spirit that comes out that you think, well, you know what, even if we are up against this phenomenal monster, I would rather go down fighting and I'll fight till, till I die on this. Rage against the um, dying because, of the light. Yeah. Right. Because it's the only honourable thing to do in terms of the future generation. And generations in the past have fought to the death for us, essentially. And now it's our turn. It rallies my fighting spirit, um, is what happens. Yeah. We might wrap it up there. That was, that was a beautiful way to end it, I think. <laughs> that was, um, <laughs> oh, I just think you're touching on so many important points, Elizabeth. It's a shame you're not a lecturer here at Fenner because, you know, you could teach a very interesting and important course, I think. There's a bit of what you're getting at missing from the education I've got so far um, at Fenner. Oh. Leave Bendigo, just come to Canberra. <laughs> yeah. Well, yeah, well, I'm obviously looking for something to do after my PhD. Yeah, you can, uh, <laughs> you can hop into whisper academia. In yeah. Yeah, whisper in anyone's ear you want to. Yeah, okay, sure. <laughs> <laughs> the Grass Ceiling Podcast is hosted by me, Nick Blood. And hosted and produced by me, Sumitri Venkatasubramanian. Thank you to Dr. Elizabeth Bolton for taking the time to chat with us and for bearing with our technical issues. Our project supervisor is Dr. Edwina Fingledon-Smith. 
The grass ceiling is made possible thanks to the technical support of the ANU Centre for the Public Awareness of Science. As always, a big thank you to the ANU Fenner School of Environment and Society for all their support in helping make this project happen. All music used in this episode was produced by Jackson Weeb. For more TGC content, including articles written about some of the topics that we've talked today and in other episodes, check out our website at www.thegrassceiling.net.